Welcome to Monsters and Mixers, the spine-chilling podcast guaranteed to quench your thirst for all things spooky and one thing drinky. Can't get enough of paranormal or true crime stories? Then this is the place for you. We are your hosts, Amy and Emma, and each episode will feature a new story and a new cocktail recipe to help calm your nerves while you listen. So grab your ingredients, pull the covers up tight, and prepare to be terrified by tales of the darkness among us. Welcome back to Monsters and Mixers. This is our second to last episode of season one. It is going to be our last paranormal episode. So next week, Emma will be bringing you our final true crime. I am your host. One of your hosts, Amy, <laughs> and the other is... Emma. I am Emma. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back. So tonight we have a uh, drink brought to you by Emma, so she's going to introduce it. <laughs> yeah, it's not that fancy. <laughs> um, we're drinking White Russians, but we made them with salted caramel vodka instead of regular vodka, because I tried that last week and it was so good. It is delicious. Because White Russians are good already, but... Just up it up, bring it up a notch. Yeah. Not everybody probably knows what a white Russian is, so you might want to tell those. Yeah, so it's, I think it's not equal parts, is it? You do less vodka than you do Kahlua. I think it's two parts Kahlua, one part vodka. Yeah, so you do like one part vodka. You don't have to do flavored. If you order one out, it's not going to be flavored. Um, But then you do like two parts Kahlua, which is, if you don't know, coffee flavored liqueur and uh, milk. (laughs) Or heavy cream. Or heavy cream. Or Bailey's. I've seen some recipes with Bailey's. Oh my gosh, that's... It would be so yummy. Yeah, but I feel like I'd be on my butt. It's a lot of liquor. It is a lot of liquor. It sounds gross because I'm always hesitant to do any kind of like milk-based alcoholic beverage because I don't always know how the two go hand in hand, but it's the best one you could drink. (laughs) I just thought of this right now. It's kind of appropriate that we started our first paranormal episode with the milk-based drink. Oh, brandy milk punch. punch. And we're ending it with one that we actually like. So the white Russian. Yeah, this one's good. Yeah. If you don't like milk or you're lactose intolerant, a lot of people leave the milk out and have a black Russian, which is just the vodka and Kahlua, but I'm not a fan. Or you could do it with oat milk. Oh, that'd be so good. Yeah, we should have gotten some oat milk. Oh man, I'm going to have a problem this Christmas <laughs> season. Because I love oat milk and that would add some flavor to it. That'd be really delicious. I'm not usually a fan of the milky drinks, but I like white Russians. They taste like a little bit of a boozy chocolate milk. Outside of like Irish coffees and this, I don't either, but mm-hmm. this is good. I love Kahlua, so... I'm a big fan. I like it more than rum chata. I don't know. I like rum chata a lot too. Cinnamon toast crunch. Yummy. Yeah. So good. All right. So we're going to go ahead and get into the story. It's kind of a long one. And I want to give a disclaimer beforehand. There are some graphic depictions and descriptions of violence against children in this episode. So if that is something that's going to bother you, then you might want to know about now. Um, I tried not to be super duper graphic, but there are stories that have definitely been um, told by the people that witnessed it, and I felt like it should be included. Mm -hmm. And just also another forewarning, I dosed the cats with some catnip ahead of time because they were a little wild today, but I think that made things worse. So there might be quite a few um, cat interruptions. They're in like their smoke circle right now. (laughs) And they're so cute. All three of them are like, what is happening? We're having like a That 70 Show basement moment. Yeah, so... (laughs) It was catnip, I promise. Nothing else. But all right, into the story. Once 
Once the home to one of Villisca's most respected residents, the house now shelters a sinister secret. At first glance, the small old white house looks normal, a little neglected and worn, but otherwise unobtrusive and non-threatening. Upon further inspection, though, a weathered sign hints at the dangers lurking inside. Murder house, it cries out, but only to those brave individuals who get close enough to read the sign. Long before serial killers and mass murders had become a way of life, two adults and six children were found brutally murdered in their beds in a small, wood, small Midwestern town in Iowa. During the weeks that followed, life for the residents changed dr drastically and permanently. 97 years later, the murders remain unsolved and are a part of the town's past that continues to haunt its future. This is the story of the Villisca Axe Murder House. On June 9, 1912, the Moore family and two young friends of the children went to the nearby church and attended a children's event. Sarah Moore, the mother of the Moore children, even helped lead the events. The children's friends, Lena and Ina Mae Stillinger, 12 and, 8, 12 and 8, phoned their parents around 6 p.m. to ask if they could walk home with the Moores and then stay the night because they, quote, didn't want to walk back to their grandmas in the dark. Their mom said yes, and the group proceeded to make their way back to the Moore home. Not much is known about what they did for the remainder of the evening, but it quickly became clear the next morning that something wasn't quite right. Around 5 or 6 a.m. the next day, Mary Peckham, the Moore's next door neighbor, was hanging laundry on the clothesline when she noticed the Moore house was unusually still and the animals seemed to be uneasy. She walked over to the house and attempted to wake the family up, but wasn't able to get them to rise. She then let the chickens out of their coop and checked in on the other livestock. Still concerned, she called the home of Ross Moore, the brother of Josiah Moore, who was the father and homeowner. She wanted to see if he knew of any reason for the family to have left suddenly in the middle of the night. She spoke with Ross's wife, Jessie, but they did not know of any reason for the family to be gone. Shortly after this conversation, Mary saw one of Josiah's employees, Ed Sully, into the barn to feed the horses. And not too long after, Ross Moore arrived and found a key to open the door. The events have been pieced together by the testimonies of the townspeople, many of whom, due to a poorly contained crime scene, were actually able to go inside the home during and after the police investigation. The town of 2500 was not used to this level of crime, and it turned into a bit of a spectator event. It is said that crowds of hundreds gathered outside and took turns walking through the house, even as the bodies still lie in the bed. According to Mary, the neighbor, and according to her testimony, she stayed on the front porch while Ross looked in the kitchen and then opened the door to the downstairs bedroom. Ross saw two bodies and blood-stained sheets and immediately returned to the porch to inform Mary that something awful had happened and to call the police. Mary told the police that the doors had been locked with a key and no key was in the lock in the, on the inside of the door. This has baffled authorities for decades. Ed Selly, Josiah's employee, stated that after he received a phone call from Ross Moore, he went to the home to feed the horses and then returned to work. Shortly after returning, he received a frantic call from Mary saying to, quote, bring the marshal to the house quickly. Selly returned to the home with the marshal and everyone re-entered the house together. After he saw the blood on the bed in the downstairs bedroom, he left the house. Outside, he met Henry, sorry, Harry Moore, another brother of Josiah. Josiah. They stayed outside and talked until Marshall Horton came out and exclaimed, either there is somebody dead or they have been killed in every bed. It was at this point in time that the house was locked and the marshal called for the coroner and sheriff. 
Sully returned to the house with his father after making the call to Omaha, but, not, but did not re-enter the home. When questioned at the inquest about possible enemies of Joe Moore, Sully admitted that Joe had mentioned a brother-in-law that could have been a threat. He is quoted as saying, I got a brother-in-law that don't like me. Said he would get even with me at some time. There's little really ever said after that could that could substantiate that. Yeah, why would he go? Yeah, and murder for that everyone. family. Like that has nothing to do with him. Right. Uh, J. Clark Cooper, who was the first physician to arrive at the scene of the crime, testified that he was called to the Moore home at approximately 8.15 on the morning of June 10th when Hank Horton entered his office and said, Come with me. According to Cooper, when he asked Horton why, Horton appeared extremely frightened and replied, Joe Moore and all his family were murdered in bed. Cooper accompanied Horton to the house, waited outside while Horton retrieved the keys from the Peckhams, and then when he returned, Cooper, Horton, Dr. Hugh, and the Presbyterian minister, Mr. Ewing, entered the home together. This kind of reminds me of, like, Amityville, the Amityville murders. A little bit. Like, walking into a house where, like, everyone was killed in their beds. Mm -hmm. According to Cooper, the group stepped into the dining room and then into the first floor bedroom. Quote, all we could see was an arm of someone sticking from under the edge of the cover with the blood on the pillows. I went over and lifted the covers and saw what I supposed was a body. Some entire stranger and a mere child at the back of the bed. I did not recognize them at all. Neither did any of the people. The others then that were with me and we merely saw that they were dead and that there were only two in the bed and then we stepped out into the parlor. When they reached the top of the stairs, a lamp sat on the floor. Horton moved the lamp out of their way and then they continued into the bedroom, Horton said. The lamp was sitting at the foot of the bed in our way, so Hank sat it in set it to one side to allow us to pass and Hank was ahead of me and he walked around to the corner to the left hand side of the bed and turned the cover back and he said here is Joe and I merely glanced over there and the first time as I came up and I saw that Mr. and Mrs. Moore were both dead and I immediately went into the south room and left the other people with them I do not know whether any of them came with me to the south room but I left plenty of them in the north room while I went to the south room then we began to count the children I can't imagine going in and finding all your friends and their kids dead like this. Yeah, also just like, why are so many people in this house? Right, the crime scene's very contaminated. Yeah, you're like contaminating everything. I mean, this was so long ago that DNA evidence wasn't really a thing. Right, the fingerprints and stuff, I mean. But you also just like, you would think that it would be your first instinct to tell everyone to get the hell out of the house mm -hmm. so you as the marshal could take care of it yourself you would think but that was not what happened here i feel like it'd be really overwhelming to walk into something like that and then have so many people like breathing down your neck yeah not to mention the trauma of the people that aren't trained law enforcement just going in and seeing all these yeah bodies i'm just gonna leave you all in the room i'm going to this yeah, house like i'm done <laughs> when questioned about the condition of the bodies cooper admitted that he did not touch the corpses thank god and this is where it gets kind of gross the breading bedding sorry <laughs> The bedding was pretty stiff at the head, and the blood and the brains on the pillow were, well, had contracted, as it does when killed, will dry so that it was perfect jelly at the time, and the blood clots were dry. He estimated that the Moors and Stillingers had been dead for at least five to six hours. Cooper also testified that he smelled no unusual or antiseptic color odor sorry, in the house, and that it seemed that the faces of the victims had been covered after they were murdered. I saw no clothes sticking into any of the wounds. In my superficial examinations, neither did I see any clothing that had any holes in it. 
I mean, any of the sheets or pillows, nothing had a hole in it. Dr. F.S. Williams was the fifth witness called to testify at the inquest. Williams was the second physician to enter the home. He testified that Ed Selly stopped him on the street on the morning of June 10th and told him that a doctor was wanted at the Moore home for an examination there. He went on to say that when he arrived at the house, Dr. Cooper and another party were coming out onto the porch. According to Williams, Cooper and another person he thought was Hank Horton re-entered with him. Williams went on to testify that upon entering the home, he smelled no odor of anesthetic, nothing seemed out of place, and the faces of bodies remained covered. When asked to describe the position of the bodies, Williams went on to say that the bed in Joe and Sarah's room was facing toward the east with their heads to the west. Joe lay on the south side or left side of the bed on his back. His left hand was on his chest. The faces were all beaten in. Williams testified that Sarah was lying beside Joe. In the bedroom to the south, at the left hand east side of the room was a cot and another bed standing there with a little boy in it. He was sleeping on his stomach and the top of his head was all beaten in. There was, there was a gauze undershirt on top of his head, soaked up with blood and I lifted that off to see which one it was. Then in the bed angled at the foot of the bed, southeast corner of the room was another bed with a little girl and her head was beaten in. And on top of her bed was a little dress and it was all blood splattered. And I think it was partly curled up over her head and covers pulled up over her face. And in the bed to the southeast southwest corner of the room were two little boys lying with both of the tops of their heads beaten in and blood splattered on everything and blood over the pillows. It is horrible. When he entered the downstairs, Hold on. Sorry. I just want to say something. Okay. This poor doctor, he was just stopped on the street and they told him that a doctor was wanted at the house for an examination there. And he didn't know. And he, yeah. you would think that you would want to be like, hey, like, really you're about happened. to walk into something like really horrible. It's not like you're just someone like died of natural causes in their sleep and you have to go. Yeah. see what happened to them well i don't know if they knew the he's probably like what the hell yeah. well he said it was ed selly so oh, he yeah. did know well ed knew that there was something had happened to somebody i don't know if anybody knew how awful it was no but yeah that would be quite shocking yeah especially back in the day like yeah that, when things like this didn't happen and when they did you didn't know about it right so when he entered the downstairs bedroom williams said he saw two girls from their appearance, one was a big woman and a little girl, and that the girl was on the outside of the bed next to the east side. Her head facing to the north, she had evidently moved after having been struck or had been moved. The blood was all scattered over the pillows. Apparently, she had been struck in the head, squirmed down in the bed, perhaps one third of the way, and her left hand was thrown back and sticking up below the pillow, and her head was beaten in. And I took particular attention to an axe wound and that the edge had come out on the forehead. So I could see the sharp edge while the top of inside of the head and the little girl back of her head was all beaten in. I know these people know how to form proper sentences. I know. I'm sorry. I promise <laughs> you I'm reading it how it's written. It's just some Midwest hillbillies. I did not recognize either one of the them little girls. Little girl in the front of the bed I thought looked familiar, but she was so mutilated that it, mutilated that I wasn't able to identify her identify her at the time and I think over the girl to the back of the bed was a little boy's gray coat and it had been thrown over her head and there was clothing some clothing on the floor some underwear 
and I noticed some under the bed and also the dresses hanging up, laying or hanging up on the wall or the foot of the bed. I forget which. There was no blood on it. So naturally, since there was underwear on the floor, they wondered what the heck. Sexual assault, possibly. So they questioned him about the possibility of a sexual assault on any of the victims, and he responded to the negative, saying, I looked to see if there was any possible, anything possible, might have been attempted intercourse or rape or something, but I did not notice anything. It was determined that Josiah Moore was the only victim that the sharp edge of the axe was used on, and all of the remaining victims were bludgeoned to death with the back of the axe. Most victims had their faces covered with clothing, and the mirrors in the house all covered with blankets or sheets. It was almost as if the killer couldn't bear to see his handiwork or his face, and that he had remorse for the crime. Even more unsettling, the murder had, murderer had taken time to make himself a meal in the Moore's kitchen, and his leftovers remained on the kitchen table. He also set up a basin and filled it with water, and it appeared that he had washed his hands in an attempt to clean himself before he left. And that is a lot to take in. I've heard of multiple stories where, like, people have killed someone in their homes and then, like, eaten yeah. meals. I'm pretty sure uh, Richard Ramirez did that. Like, he ate that apple. Maybe. There's, like, food and, like, fruit left at, like, the scene of one of his crimes. It's just so weird to think that, like, you do that and then you want to eat I feel their like food in their kitchen. I, I didn't want to put it because I couldn't remember exactly, but I feel like this was like a full, like he made himself like a ham steak and eggs and like How do they cook, know it was cook. his? Was there blood on it? Like how do you know they hadn't eaten? Because I think because it was just the one person's meal and they had been dead for so long, I think they could tell how long the food had been there. Maybe. Yeah, so we're going to let you digest that little bit for a minute. No pun intended. Um, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. back with the continuation of the Velisca axe murder house and so as the town's residents reinforced their locks they began to openly carry weapons and huddled together while sleeping newspaper reporters and private detectives flooded the streets accusations rumors and suspicions ran rampant among friends and families they even brought bloodhounds in Law enforcement agencies from neighboring counties and states joined forces. Hundreds of interviews filled thousands of pages. Yet, the murders remained unsolved and the murderer unpunished. While no one was ever convicted of the axe murders, there seemed to be no shortage of suspects. In the days following the crimes, you could have read about at least four possibilities in any edition of the newspaper. Many of the leads, however, were quickly exhausted and as time wore on, they began to dwindle. That shows how much we've, like, changed as a society. Yeah. Because you're not going to see, like, any news outlets start manifesting, like, stories about people who aren't, like, named right. suspects or, like, people of interest in cases. Because mm-hmm. they get sued. Yeah. And I don't think that was a thing back then. Yeah. I mean, it might have been. I don't know if you could get sued for libel back in the 19, early 1900s. Maybe. Today, historians and those who have studied the axe murder extensively seem to be made up of three camps. There are many who believe Frank F. Jones, a prominent Villisca resident and Iowa State Senator, was responsible for the brutal deaths of the Moors and the Stillinger children. Others adamantly insist that the crazed Reverend George Kelly was the culprit. 
Still others believe the more murders were the work of someone totally unrelated to the town of Villisca, a possible traveler, hobo, or serial killer. And the nip has kicked in, so <laughs> Olive's being very chatty right now. Hi, Olive. Josiah Moore worked for Frank Jones at the Jones store for several years until he opened his own implement company in 1908. According to the Villisca residents, Jones was extremely upset that Moore had left his employ and managed to take the very lucrative John Deere franchise with him. Rumor <laughs> was that Moore had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna, which further fanned the flames. Detective Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency openly accused Frank and his son Albert of hiring William Mansfield to kill Joe Moore. Neither Jones nor Albert were ever arrested and both denied vehemently any connection to the murders. Sorry, there was a word missing there. William Mansfield of Blue Island, Illinois was the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson. According to the Wilkin Wilkerson investigation, the murder of Joe Moore and the other occupants of the Moore home were committed by Mansfield, who was in turn hired by F.F. Jones. Mansfield was also known as George Worley and or Jack Turnbaugh, so he had quite a few aliases. According to, Wil to Wilkerson, Mansfield was a cocaine fiend and serial killer. Wilkerson also believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5, 1914, two years after the Villisca murders. The axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, four days before Villisca murders, and the murders of Jeannie Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Colorado. So earlier we said that this was like a time before this thing was, you didn't really see a whole lot of murders, but as I was reading through and doing research, apparently there was like this mass string of axe murders during this time. Like they think this guy just Why committed axes? I guess they're readily available. I mean, there probably wasn't as much access to guns and things. Yes, there was. In the 1900s? I don't oh, know. Yeah. I mean, shotguns for protection, but... Muskets. <laughs> I'm not sure they were muskets. <laughs> but, so, there was quite a rash of people being axe murdered. That's horrible. It That's a horrible. horrible way to die, too. Yeah, it'd be it awful. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's so messy. Mm -hmm. Like, from a someone who wants to kill someone perspective like that is such a well and all the messy people, way to kill someone in the cases i just talked about it was men women and children you have to be pretty fucked up to do this too. do you know how hard it is to swing an axe mm -hmm. really fucking hard yeah they're it also heavy not though, easy. most of the victims were in bed so you would get that downward um momentum yeah but you also like you hear about so many like stabbing deaths it's really hard to stab someone to death you have to put some fucking brutal force behind that Ugh, gross. yeah it's just depraved and gross mm -hmm. and sad all right so according to wilkerson's investigation all the murders were committed in precisely the same manner indicating the same man committed them wilkerson stated that he could prove that mansfield was present in each of these places on the night of the murders in each murder the victims were hacked to death with an axe and the mirrors in the homes were covered which is not true because we know that the moors only one of them was hacked up. The rest were all bludgeoned. So this guy's already got holes in his story. Well, I think he's just implying that an axe was used. 
Maybe. The weird thing is the mirrors. That is suggesting a pattern. Mm -hmm. A burning lamp with a chimney off was left at the foot of the bed, and a basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. So there is, those are definitely correlations. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving finger, fingerprints by wearing gloves, which Wilkerson believed was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield, who knew his fingerprints were on file at the federal military prison at Leavenworth. Should never let him out. Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to the Montgomery County, to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Paywall, payroll records, however, provided an alibi that placed Mansfield's Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. He was released for a lack of evidence and later won a lawsuit he brought against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225, which back then was quite a bit of money. Wilkerson believed that pressure from Jones resulted not only in Mansfield's release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of Reverend Kelly. Many believe this to be a mistake, especially since there were witnesses that placed Mansfield near Villisca at the time of the murders. So lots of evidence saying he was there, lots saying he wasn't. Yeah, but I feel like payroll records are more solid evidence than just hearsay. Unless somebody's in his, like his buddy, fake payroll records. I guess. Yeah. Um, R.H. Thorpe, a restaurant man from nearby Shenandoah, identified Mansfield as the man he saw the morning after the murder boarding a train at Clarinda. The man said he had walked from Villisca. If this had been substantiated, it would have broken down Mansfield's alibi. So, had they been able to prove that, the guy probably would have Hard been in jail forever. Mm -hmm. You don't have, like, train tickets? Um, I don't know if he was... Because they talked about hobos and transients, so I wonder if he was, like, jumping on a train. I just wonder how this guy knew him. The yeah, other... R.H. Thorpe. <laughs> Maybe it's him. <laughs> Maybe. The other prime suspect in the Axe murders was Reverend George Kelly, a traveling preacher... Kelly and his wife settled in Macedonia, Iowa in 1912 after several years of preaching throughout the Midwest. In 1917, Kelly was arrested and charged with the murders of one of the victims of the Villisca Axe murders. Kelly was invited to attend the Children's Day exercises at the Presbyterian Church on June 9th of 1912. His presence in Villisca on the night of the murders and his subsequent departure in the early morning hours of June 10th made him a prime suspect in the case. How was he just charged with one? Uh... I think they thought they would just try and see if one stuck kind of thing. I don't know. Oh, 1912. Yeah. Kelly's supposed confession made a mockery of law enforcement practices at the time and was withdrawn before his trial began. Kelly's first trial resulted in a hung jury and he was finally acquitted by the second. According to the information presented by Kelly and Tammy Rundle, Kelly moved to Kansas City, Connecticut... Kansas City and Connecticut. <laughs> oh, I, I think so. Kansas City, oh, Connecticut, Oh, Kansas City, and <laughs> Connecticut, and finally New York. I was like, I didn't know there was another Kansas City. The remaining years of his life and final resting place remain a mystery. So I think he confessed to one of them, and that's why they charged him, but then they realized his confession was bullcrap. Yeah, he was probably just fucking with the law enforcement. Why, though? He was a reverend. What would he gain from that? He probably felt slighted that he was involved at all. Maybe. Like I'd said previously... There existed a strong possibility that a serial killer was actually at work, and Wilkerson's case against Mansfield actually suggested the same. M.W. McClary, a federal officer assigned to the Villisca case, actually announced in May of 1913 that he had solved not only the Villisca murders, but 22 others that had been committed in the Midwest around the same time frame. McClary's theory was that Henry Moore, 
who has no relation to Josiah Moore, was the serial killer responsible for all of the crimes. Henry Moore was actually convicted of the murders of his mother and maternal grandmother in Columbia, Columbia Missouri just months after the murders in Villisca. Moore's family members were killed just as brutally as the victims in Villisca, and his weapon of choice was an axe. In 1900, Henry, Henry was living with a family in Franklin County, Iowa, and working as a farmhand. It is suspected that Henry may have fathered a child with the young daughter of the farmer. Henry was sentenced to the Kansas State Reformatory in Hutchinson, Kansas, on a forgery charge and was released in, on April 11, 1911. The murders in Colorado Springs occurred in September of the same year. So they're saying, like, right after he got out of prison, the first murders happened. Testimony during Henry's trial indicated that he lived with his mother and grandmother during the winter of 1911 and the summer of 1912. Then he left to take a job on the railroad. Henry Lee Moore served 36 years of a life sentence before being paroled by the governor of Missouri on December 2, 1949. The governor commuted his sentence on July 30, 1956. Henry Moore was 82 years old and had been living in the Salvation Army Center in St. Louis. Ooh, it's close to home. It is unknown when he died or where he was living at the time, so they couldn't ever actually pin the Villisca murders on him. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is like long before the term serial killer even existed, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, honestly, good on <laughs> the investigators for even noticing a pattern because back then they didn't even think those were yeah. like things that happened. And, I mean, primarily, most people kind of kept themselves. There weren't a whole lot of murders. There weren't crimes of passion or revenge or something. It's like one-off crimes. Yeah. So good on you for noticing a pattern. Yeah. So like we said, during the Villisca investigation, other axe murders also came to light. Just nine months before the crime in Villisca, H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, and Miss, Mrs. A.J. Burnham and her two, two children were bludgeoned with an axe in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I didn't realize, honestly, until starting this, that there were so many axe murders. Oh, yeah. It was really scary. And a month later, in October of 1911... A family was killed in Monmouth, Illinois, and just a week later, five members of a family in Ellsworth, Kansas, were murdered as they slept. Just a week before the killing of the Moors and Stillingers in Villisca, a man and his wife were killed in Paola, Kansas. The similarities in the crimes were striking. McClary received information about Moore's conviction from his father, who was the warden of the Leavenworth, Kansas Federal Penitentiary. It was his belief that Mr. Henry Moore had committed all of the murders. For whatever reason, McClary's announcement went largely ignored, and to our knowledge, Henry Moore was not convicted of any of the other crimes. In June of 1912, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, police officials who were in constant touch with the Villisca authorities found added parallels in the Moore and the Burnham-Wayne murders, which are difficult to explain by the theory that the same person or persons committed both crimes. In the Villisca, in Villisca the murderer strung skirts and aprons across the windows to prevent anyone from looking into the house. At the Wayne and Burnham houses, bedspreads were stretched across the windows. Now these people have curtains. I'm also like, what? that's not really that big of a difference. Mm -hmm. Like, they were probably just finding anything that covered the windows. Yeah, anything close by. And Velisca, he covered the heads of the victims with bed clothing, wiped the blood from the axe, and removed the stains from his hands and clothing. And this, too, was the case here as in the Iowa town. The doors were locked and unfastened rear window in each instance, affording a means of entrance for the ax man. Hmm. So he had to be somebody that like snuck in beforehand in and unlocked a window and then came back. Yeah. Which is super scary. Like, pre completely premeditated. Mm-hmm. 
Um, like we said before, every hobo, transient, otherwise unaccounted for stranger was also a suspect in the axe murders. One sus such suspect was a man named Andy Sawyer. As with many other suspects, no real evidence linked Mr. Sawyer to the crime. However, his name came up often in grand jury testimonies. Just because he is it transient? Mm hmm According to Thomas Dyer of Burlington, Iowa, a bridge foreman and pile driver for the Burlington Railroad, Sawyer approached his crew in Creston at 6 a.m. on the morning of the murders. Mr. Sawyer was clean-shaven and wearing a brown suit when he arrived. His shoes were covered in mud and his pants were wet nearly to the knees. He asked for employment, and as Mr. Dyer needed an extra man, he was given a job on the spot. Mr. Dyer testified that later that evening when the crew hit Fontenelle, Iowa, Mr. Sawyer purchased a newspaper, which he went off by himself to read. The newspaper carried a front-page account of the Velisca murders, and according to, D to Dyer, Sawyer was much interested in it. Dyer's crews complained that Sawyer slept with his clothes on, and this is why he's a suspect, and was anxious to be by himself. They were also uneasy about the fact that Sawyer slept with his axe and often talked of the Velisca murders and whether or not a killer had been apprehended. He apparently told Dyer personally that he had been in Velisca that Sunday night and he had heard of the murders and was afraid that he may be a suspect, which was why he left and showed up in Creston. Dyer was suspicious and turned him over to the sheriff on June 18th of 1912. <laughs> so he was acting Would you be afraid that you were a suspect? Because he was unknown in a lot of, in a lot of small towns. Yeah, but if you're just like passing through and you don't make yourself like known to the town, no one's gonna know you were there. I don't know. He had an axe. I'd be sleeping with an axe too if people were getting axe murdered everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't know about all He's the probably others. Probably terrified. Probably. Prior to the sheriff arriving, Dyer testified that he walked up behind Sawyer, and he was Sawyer was rubbing his head with both hands, and all of a sudden jumped up and said to himself. I will cut your, down, your goddamn heads off. At the same time, he made striking motions with the axe and began hitting the piles in front of him. He's losing it. He was a bit uneasy. Dyer's son also testified that one day, as the crew drove through Villisca, Sawyer told him he would show him where the man that killed the Moore family got out of town. So remember how he showed up to the job site. He said the man that did the job jumped over a manure box, which he pointed out about one and a half blocks away, and then show where he crossed the railroad track and there were footprints in the soggy ground north of the embankment. He then said for me to look on the other side of the car and he would show me an old tree where he said the murderer stepped into the creek. Remember he shut up all wet? Do you think he's just nuts? Maybe, but it seems like pretty coincidental that he knows all those things. Well, he's just saying what he did. Maybe. I feel like he might just be a little off his rocker. Probably, and that's probably why he didn't get charged with it. According to J.R. Dyer, he looked over and saw such a tree south of the track about four blocks away. Sawyer, however, was apparently dismissed as a suspect in the case when it was discovered that he was able to prove he had been in Osceola, Iowa on the night of the murders. I think it's Osceola. Uh, probably. He had been arrested for vagrancy and the Osceola sheriff recalled putting him on a train at approximately 11 p.m. that evening so that further confirms your theory that he was just in that job yeah i mean people did that all, people still do that all the time where yeah. they for some reason just like make up their own stories as if they were there when they weren't it's False a very weird phenomenon mm -hmm. uh, another early suspect in the murders was joe ricks a man who was arrested in monmouth illinois when he stepped off a train wearing shoes that were covered with blood 
In the newspaper articles that discussed the accusation, the man was not recognized as the man seen in Villisca asking for directions to the Moore's home the day preceding the murders. So there was that. Somebody just randomly asking for directions to their home the day before. But Who no was one, that? No one knows. No one knows. We got all these poor freaking reverends and vagabonds being put on trial when clearly the person who did it was asking for directions to their house. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many people that it could have been. It's, it's weird. just I actually all, so many crimes and cases back in the day were so messy. Yep. They just didn't have the capability to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So we've already had what two, one person, two people confess. We had the reverend confess to one of them when they said that wasn't him, and then this guy confessed and it wasn't him. And then still, years later, more confessions continue to roll in. Many people confessed to the crime or of knowing who committed it. For one reason or another, none of them were ever proven to be responsible for the crimes. The list included um, Reverend J.J. Burris of Turlington, Oklahoma. So another reverend. That's midnight mass. The minister who was the pastor of the Church of Christ in Oklahoma City declared that a man who... Oh, wait. I'm sorry. He wasn't the one that confessed. He, Is it a different heard, he heard a confession. Yeah. Okay. So the minister, who was a pastor of the Church of Christ in Oklahoma City, declared that a man whose name he was unable to recall, which I call horseshit on. Recall it. On his, JJ. on his deathbed, confessed to him having committed the murders, which shocked the entire state. And which, for four and a half years, have still not been solved. So at this time, it was like four and a half years later. He said the confession was made to him in a hotel at Rattersburg, Montana, July 1913. About a year after the crime, when I arrived, <laughs> when I arrived at the bedside, I saw at a glance he was at death's door. He was in torment and lived only a short time after I arrived. Death was said to have been due to delirium tremors. Mr. Burris said the man began to talk immediately upon his entering the room, and he said he had been guilty of many wrongs. Continued, the minister continued listening to his confession, and the guy said he wanted to make a clean breast before he died. He seemed to know that he had a short while to live. His life was passing rapidly, and it was with great difficulty that he spoke. He was physically unable to dwell much on details. The man sank back among the pillows. A great load seemed to have been lifted from his mind. In a few minutes, he breathed his last breath. Mr. Burris said the body was buried in Rattersburg. So, don't know who he is. He's just buried in Rattersburg, but he confessed to this killing. What body? The body of the guy that confessed. Oh, yeah. you know where he was buried and you were at his bedside. I mean, how would you even prove it, though? At that point, he's dead and you can't prove that he did it. I know, but like, how do you not know so many details? You'd think hearing that, you'd be like, I need to remember who this person is. Right, immediately call somebody. Yeah, he's like confessing to unsolved massive yeah. crimes. So the clergyman said that the man told him that he was living in Villisca at the time of the murder and that... Formerly, he had been engaged in the blacksmith's business, business there. He is said to, to have been part owner of a blacksmith shop in Bradensburg at the time of his death. So then there was another prisoner in Detroit that also confessed. George Myers, 48, prisoner in county, he was a prisoner in county jail awaiting sentence for burglary, and he confessed to the murder of six persons. He said a man, his wife, and their four children. So... That actually makes sense because he wouldn't have known that the other two weren't his kids. Eight, he said it was 18 years ago. 
Meyer's alleged confession came after five hours of grilling by detectives Max, Max Richmond and Earl Anderson, who had received an anonymous tip by letter to check up on the prisoner. Fingerprints of Myers sent to the sheriff are said to have checked with fingerprints found at the scene of the crime. So he would be your most likely person. I never knew what the man's name was, the guy said, the man that confessed. He pointed out the house of the family he wanted wiped out. I demanded part of my money from him before I did the job. So he's saying he was a murder for hire. He gave me $2,000 and said he would give me the rest afterwards. I got an axe and entered the house about midnight. I killed them all, the man, his wife, and their four children. They were all asleep. A little while after, I again met this man who had hired me and told me to do the job, and I told him the job was done. I wanted the rest of my money. He said I'd have to wait. When the businessman refused to pay him the rest of the money until he saw the family had been killed, Meyer said he fled the town before daybreak and never returned. It is hard to imagine that with all of these confessions, suspects, and supposed witnesses, the murder was never found. But that is exactly the case, and some wonder if that is why there is so much paranormal activity still at the house. I can imagine that the spirits are pretty restless of the people there. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to take a little break, and then we'll talk a little bit about the paranormal things happening there and the current owners. murders, the house remained in estate until 1915 when it was purchased by J.H. Giesman. Over the following 90 years, the Villisca Axe Murder House had seven additional owners, including the Villisca State Savings and Loan, whose company name appears on the title from 1963 to 1971. In 1971, the house was titled to Kendrick and Vance, and only a month later, retitled to Darwin and Kendrick. Mr. Kendrick remained the name on the title until the house was sold again to Rick and Vicki Sprague, on January 1st, 1994. It was only a few months later that a real estate agent approached Darwin Lynn in hopes of interesting him in the property. At the time, the Lynns owned and operated the Olson Lynn Museum located on the town square in downtown Villisca. The house on lot 310 was in danger of being raised had Darwin not decided to purchase it. Darwin originally lowballed an offer on the property, told the agent it would expire at midnight on the first of the year and promptly forgot about it. Needless to say, he was a little surprised when the call came just before the deadline and he became the proud owner of one of the most notorious crime scenes in the country. It took him a few months to confide in his wife, I guess he didn't want to tell her he bought it, and after Martha recovered from the shock, they set about obtaining the necessary funds to restore the home to its original condition. So they have since then like completely revamped the house to look like it did when they lived there, down to like original plumbing and everything. In addition to the 13 owners listed on the deed, the house was often used as a rental property, although the Lynns have begun to compile a list of the rental tenants, the process is slow and often difficult due to the number of renters who stayed in the home. I don't know why they want a list of it, but probably just so they can maybe see if they can check and see if any of these paranormal accounts are substantiated. Sometime between 1936 and 1994, the house underwent quite a transfiguration when the front and back porches were closed in. Plumbing and electricity were added and the outbuildings were removed or replaced. So using old photographs, the Lynns began to renovate in late 1994. 
Work on the home included the removal of vinyl siding and the restoration or repairing of the original wood on the outside. The removal of the front and the back enclosures, the addition of an outhouse and chicken coop in the backyard, and the removal of all electrical and plumbing fixtures. So like completely went back in time with this house. The pantry in the original house had been converted into a bathroom and was also restored to its original condition. Using testimonies given during the coroner's inquest and grand jury testimonies, the Lens have placed furniture in approximately the same places it occupied at the time of their murders. And I can't tell if I think that's super cool or really fucking gross. Yeah, I'm assuming they're just trying to preserve its history. They are, and in 1998, the place was... Um, listed where they received the preservation at its best award and then the house went on the historic registry so it's no longer allowed to be like torn yeah, down i'm fine with that it's better than like taking advantage of it and trying to like profit from like regentrifying it or making it some yeah. like upscale house i mean they do still profit because you can take tours of the house uh, they give you like a little history lesson beforehand and you can actually stay the night there it's closed right now i looked today um closed for the season i think because i would imagine it gets kind of good on that gross yeah so there have been um lots of people who have reported having paranormal encounters there and the one that i thought stu stood out the most was a paranormal investigator who was staying there and midway through the night he literally stabs himself in the chest and said that the house essentially made him stab himself which is really crazy yeah. Mm -hmm. Why? Did he die? No, he was 37 and it was, it's kind of unclear why he did it or how he did it or whatever. But, um, yeah, he got a call at 12, the cops got a call at 1245 AM saying he, um, stabbed himself in the chest. Jesus. Yeah. I, you were saying earlier how hard it would be to stab a person to death. Can you imagine how hard it'd be to stab yourself? No. Yeah, it would be quite horrible. Because your brain automatically tells you not to. Mm -hmm. Just like the fact that you can like bite off your pinky like it's a carrot, but your brain says don't do right. that. And he wasn't like some cuckoo head or anything. He was just a normal dude. Well, I don't know about that. Yeah. Lots of people bring <laughs> toys to play with the children, and it's said that they will put the toys in the room, and the toys will move on their own and be in different places when they are there. It's like mineral springs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another paranormal investigator who recounted his time there. When he first came to the house, his name was Hauser. He said he was super into UFO conspiracies, but thought the ideas of ghosts were stupid. That was until he heard footsteps while he was alone in the house. While cleaning one day, he heard someone walk upstairs and shut a dresser door. Thinking someone broken in, he walked up the stairs to confront who he thought would be a trespasser. He said, so I go up to kick this guy out. Nobody's up there, he said. I talked to my buddies later and they're all like, Oh, you know, house make noises. He's like, I'm fully aware of what footsteps sound like, and this is what it sounded like. I'm not a complete idiot. So he um, started staying the night there after that and wanted to see if he could get more things on record. He also witnessed... Oh, he became a tour guide. He also witnessed objects moving, chairs rocking, and has had... I don't think he became a tour guide. I'm assuming this is about a Oh, tour I'm guide. sorry, the tour guide, yeah. The tour guide also had witnessed objects moving, chairs rocking, and had heard full conversations upstairs when no one else was in the house. Uh, he did not actually see a ghost. One time a photography student took Hauser's photo with a Civil War era camera in the attic. The photographer believed that the lighting was too dark and, when the, photo, and the photo wouldn't turn out. 
When the photo developed, he noticed a shadow behind him. He said, then I got to looking at the shadow and its shoulders kind of went straight down and mine kind of went out, Hauser said. So that kind of instantly made, the, made me think that the shadow was not me, it was something else. There's uh, one picture that's really creepy where somebody took a picture up in the attic and it looks like a completely normal picture until they point it out and the front leg of the chair is like lifted off the ground. Yeah, that's creepy. And, and probably posed. There's no way it could have been posed like that. It's kind of a cute little house. I would never go there and stay, especially with all of the um, creepy things that happen. I don't want to stab happen. myself. <laughs> I definitely don't want to stab myself. Well, no, but if like whatever's in there is making people do crazy things to themselves, I don't yeah. want that. Most of the interactions are said to have to be with the children you don't hear a whole lot about the adults and i don't know why that is any theories on why it would be just the kids i don't know maybe they just lingered longer possibly that's me. they were younger mm -hmm. i couldn't find a whole lot of first hand accounts i mean people go there all the time they have a online like yelp page you can leave reviews and lots of people say they stayed there and felt really un uncomfortable and well, I mean yeah uneasy but that to me is like I would feel uncomfortable too you know where you're staying like what happened there yeah like, I would not like that like you could stay like say we go to the Amityville Horror House and we stay there like nothing scary happens to us we're still gonna be on edge because we know creeped out the whole night that it was that horrible things have happened in there yeah for sure I never understood like the need for or the desire that people have to want to buy these places I think in this case, sorry, we were both taking a drink at the same time. I think in this case, he wanted to buy it to preserve it so it wasn't torn down. Because I'm sure it's a pretty big tourism draw to the town. There's not a whole lot of things, and like it's a little bitty town. Yeah, but and then I like think back to our Demon House episode, and they straight up bulldoze that yeah, place. Yeah, well, that's because Zach did it. I think I feel like did Ghost Adventures go to this place? I don't know. I'm not sure either. I'll have to look and see. I will look right now. All right, Emma's gonna look, and you have any idea what you're doing for your final? Yeah, I'm doing Call of Sims. Nice. Yeah, that's really new right now. It's in the news. I felt like this one. I almost didn't do this episode. I almost gave it to Emma because it feels a lot more true crime than paranormal. But that's the case with a lot of the things that we do. We're still trying to decide what we're gonna do next. They did next. Okay, we're tr still trying to decide what we're gonna do next season. Um, just because there's lots of different possibilities, lots of things we could do. Gosh. Season four, episode six, if you want to watch it, they went to the Velisca Axe Murder House and took some very poor, um, poorly, poor, poor taste, taste pictures. pictures outside of it with axes. Yeah. Aw, Aaron, not you too. Oh, this has, there's pictures of like the inside here. Yeah, it's cute. It's just old and creepy. It doesn't look big at all. Oh. oh, no, you said big tourist attraction out of the yeah. big house. Yeah, no. I don't know. I don't know either. I feel so It'd bad. be very interesting to be like a fly on the wall in that trial. Mm-hmm. None of them were good. All the trials were crap. The people... Well, I, I mean, having all those people walk in and out, the, the killer could have been in the crowd outside walking in and out of the house doing all of those things with yeah. all the hundreds of people. And I think the thing that breaks my heart the most about this story is those poor little girls who were scared to walk to their grandma's house yeah. and then got their heads beaten in for no reason. She That's agrees. Olive. Olive's really um, on her catnip I think it's right interesting now. that their heads were covered. To me, that indicates somebody was 
they didn't want to look at what they'd done. They, they also said that there wasn't like much blood spatter like on bed, so it makes me think that they were killed somewhere else and then moved there. Or they covered their heads up before they did it. But they said there were no holes in the covers no holes or in the sheets either. or like anything. Get down, goofball. Because I would imagine that would be an incredibly gruesome oh, yeah. crime scene. I mean, you're bludgeoning people to death and there's brains everywhere. Yeah, that's gross. It's just horrible. Well, on that positive note, we're going to um, end this glorious episode. Thanks for listening to the Monsters and Mixers podcast. Please follow us on our socials on Facebook at Monsters and Mixers Pod, on Twitter at Monsters and Mixers, and on Instagram at Monsters and Mixers Podcast. Um, like and follow us on your preferred listening platform. Leave a five-star rating and send us those stories via email at MonstersandMixers2 at gmail.com or at one of the socials mentioned. Please send us stories or ideas for next season if you'd like. Uh, We're still trying to figure out what that's going to look like for each of us. Until then, though, see you next time when we dive into another drink, dive into another (laughs) tale, and concoct a new delicious drink to wash down the horde. Now get out there and meet some ghosts. And make some toast.